peace. The world in its uh, history has had so little of it, and few citizens of the world have experienced it. Uh, what about you? If you were to be asked this question, are you at peace? How would you answer? We're going to address that subject tonight. To be more precise, we're going to consult the words of the Lord Jesus himself. And to do so, we're going to focus our attention only on one verse in John's gospel. You know, we've been spending quite a lot of time there. And uh, we left off last week at a certain spot. We'll continue tonight with one verse of scripture, John chapter 14, verse 27. And here is how it interestingly begins. Uh, the Lord Jesus is speaking and he says, peace, I leave with you. I'm quite interested in what he has to say about this because if anyone at this particular time when he made this declaration should be without peace, it should be him. You see, in just a few hours from the time when he made that statement, he will be executed in a, a torturous way. And even the events leading up to it will involve uh, quite a good deal of suffering and public humiliation. And therefore, I'm quite intrigued by his statement about, about peace. He made it, as I think you know, uh, to his intimate followers who came to be known as apostles. And it was during a meal, a Passover meal, and in fact, it was his last supper. They are not at peace. And the reason is because he declared soon he will depart from them. And this really affected their expectations. They imagined they would with him ride the waves of messianic campaign. The Romans would be dealt with and all the rest. And now he, their king, says he's going to depart from them and they can make no sense of it. And therefore they are quite distressed and troubled. And yet as I, I think about their experience, I wonder about his. Doesn't he have a right to be distressed and troubled? I mean, he's facing a rather horrific end. He knew about it in advance. And yet he seems to be more concerned about his followers than even about his own situation. And so I'm all the more interested in what this very unusual rabbi Jesus had to say about peace when he's living in anticipation of his own rather excruciating death. And so to begin with, he says to his followers, peace is what he chooses to bequeath to them. That's what he says, peace. I leave with you. It is as if that's a declaration in his last will and testament. In fact, this is about him dispensing what he is about to leave behind. It's about the disposition of what he has to give away. And so he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Peace is his to give and Shortly before his crucifixion, he declares his intent to do that very thing, to give it. He is committing his soul to his father, but he is committing his peace to his followers, like you and I. 
a grave soon will get his body. Roman soldiers will get his clothing, and, but his disciples will be the recipients of his peace. He could leave if he wanted to. He could leave with them riches, but he chose not to leave them silver and gold. He could, if he chose to, he could have bequeathed to them health, but he did not. He could have, but did not. He could have bequeathed to them a trouble-free existence characterized by smooth sailing, but he didn't. And in fact, he made a promise to them a few chapters from now in John chapter 16, verse 33. He said, in the world you have tribulation. So then he did not bequeath to them things we might have expected him to, but he declared in spite of the troubles and hardships they will experience, he said, still I'm going to leave you peace. I'm going to leave you my peace. So I wonder what kind of peace is it that persists in the face of the poverty and persecution these and many of the Lord's followers down to this very day are experiencing? What kind of peace is it that remains, that endures in the face of, say, cancer? What peace can coexist in, with losses as great, for instance, as the uh, passing of a child, which some of you have experienced? What kind of peace is it that he's speaking about? What kind of peace did the tortured Savior possess and then choose to bequeath to one such as us, so that he could declare, even in the face of loss and pain and great hurt, do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now, before I tell you what kind of peace it is that I think he's speaking about, let's let the Lord speak for himself and first tell us what kind of peace it ain't. This is what he says. This peace is not as the world gives which implies that the world does make an offer of peace. It does, in fact. But it is, according to the words of the Lord, not at all the same kind of peace he's prepared to give away. So what is the world's peace like then? Well, it's circumstantial, largely, meaning it's directly connected to peaceful circumstances. If the situation is going your way, externally, internally, well, then you have a measure of peace. But by definition, since circumstances come and go, so too does your peace. So the peace the world offers is at best fleeting, transient. And the Lord distinguishes his peace from that entirely. You don't have to look to Jesus for the kind of peace the world offers. It's tied to worldly circumstances. We don't need a savior who pierced the space-time dimension with an offer of peace to get the world's kind of peace. <clears throat> what kind of peace is it then that he offers? Well, I think it's a shalom kind of peace, if you'll allow me to get Hebrew with you for a little bit. Uh, you're familiar with this word. It's the Hebrew word for peace, shalom. But it means much more than the mere absence of strife or conflict. It's a little hard, really, even to wrap your mind around the rather all-encompassing nature of this singular word. It means, if I could sum it up, shalom means well-being, 
apart from the situation or circumstances one finds himself or herself in. It's a state of well-being. It's what happens when things are in their right place. Now, this is a foolish thing, but it happened today. We were gathered around uh, Brother Chuck's office this morning for our executive staff meeting, which is our fashion every Wednesday morning. And from my vantage point, I could look across the room and see one of the wall hangings he's had on the wall. It was way out of whack. And I just couldn't function. <laughs> Those of you who are obsessive compulsive like me, you know exactly. Or like Emery Gad, you know him? He makes me look relaxed. So I just couldn't deal with it. So in the middle of, I'm sure, something really important, which I couldn't concentrate on, I called across the room to Wes. He was seated right under the painting. And I said, Wes, please, do something about that. And he did. He put it in its rightful place. And I, uh, I didn't have to take as much Valium as I thought I would. It, the world was a better place because I remember when my kids were young after the holidays uh, I would subject them to the project of uh, cleaning out the attic every time after the holidays they're just geared up for it I think that's why they hate, they hate the holidays um, and I would just derive such gratification from it all the mysterious stuff up in the attic would be taken care of and put in the proper place and I just I could just sleep, and I was just so relaxed. That's what shalom means, when everything is in its right place. Now, the word used here in our text is not shalom. It's a Greek word, but it's similar to it. It's irene. Maybe there's someone here whose name is Irene. If so, you have a beautiful name. Your name, Irene, comes from this Greek word, irene. It's an equivalent word to shalom, you might say. And again, it means when things are in their proper place, when things are in order, when things are rightly positioned, that's shalom, that's irene, that's, that's peace. And so shalom, the Lord's shalom, is bequeathed to those who come to be in proper alignment with the Almighty. That's the point. When the creature is rightly positioned with reference to the creator, then that creature has the shalom, the sar shalom, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, says only he can offer. When the creature, you see, is at odds with the creator, you've been there as have I, that creature can only have the world's rather fleeting circumstantial peace. But things change when you're in the right position and relationship with the Almighty. Everything changes even in spite of circumstances. So you see, the peace that Jesus has and wishes to give is the peace that comes from being in right relationship with God. It's a peace that persists. Now, see if you can get this. In spite of feelings, feelings are wonderful slaves, but horrible masters. And so this is the kind of peace that's there whether you feel it or not. If I could put it this way, the peace that Jesus gives is the peace of position, not condition. You see, one's condition may be very hard and hurtful, <clears throat> and yet one's position may be so irreversibly right with God that in spite of one's 
condition, one has peace. If you're a Christian, you could relate to this. We can call this kind of peace, let's call it objective peace. Now the feelings which are subjective may have to catch up with your, the reality, the factual nature of your objective peace. But whether your feelings are there or not, it doesn't matter if you're in Christ. You have this peace which persists no matter what your life experience has to be at the time. But this uh, objective, factual peace is meant to inform, kind of control, uh, regulate our feelings. And that's why I think the Lord Jesus, who himself was acquainted, as you know, with much grief, could say to us, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. On what basis could he say that? It's on the basis of the objective peace that is, being in right relationship with creator God that we have. Once that happens, we can regulate our feelings and come to have a measure of peace in spite of circumstances. I think the Lord is saying, let your position affect your condition. And so even in the harshest of conditions, you can draw on the reality, on the factual nature of your peaceful position with the Almighty. Even during tears, even in the midst of grief and hardship, even when you are in pain, you can remember. We can remember and we can reflect on the sovereign and gracious God who at great personal cost sent to us a rescuer and a redeemer. And to borrow from Paul's thinking, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser, if he did not withhold his prized only begotten special son for us, then we must realize, even in the midst of a painful, grievous time, how will he not also then, with him, freely give us all things? What happens when our condition uh, is disrupted and we're in pain, we have a tendency not to think too clearly. We're feeling, we're not thinking, and the two seem to be inconsistent, and sometimes we're feeling abandoned. But how could it be that the God who made such an investment in redeeming us, how could it be that he would ever abandon us? Doesn't make sense. And so what you find happening is a measure of peace, even of an emotional kind, emerging even in the midst of the most painful of circumstances because of the factual nature of your new position and my new position in Christ Jesus. This is the peace this Jesus, even at his extremity of need, had. He groaned, he, he ached, and he even cried out to God, you know this, about a cup which he wished not to drink from. It was the cup of separation from his father. It was the cup of death. It was the cup containing our sin. And remember, he made this heartfelt appeal to his father, let this cup pass from me. And the father's answer was essentially, no, you must drink from it. The Lord's condition at the time was troubling and overwhelming, <coughs> deeply disturbing and painful to him, but his position, his shalom with his father, persuaded him to let his father's will be done, even if it was painful. And in the end, he knew God's will would serve a good and acceptable purpose. You may be in pain, even as we sit here together tonight, but you are in Christ.
you may be in trouble, but you are in Christ. You may be in need of some sort, but you are in Christ. And so there's the condition, and it must not master us because there's the position. The in Christness is our position, and it must impact even on our most painful condition. Do not let your heart be troubled, says the Lord. Even our hurting and fearful heart, even it could give way to the peace which he gives us. He wants our condition again, our feelings to be informed by the fact and presence of a sovereign and gracious God, an all-powerful God with whom we are irreversibly don't you see, rightly related to. That's what righteousness is. Not so much right living, that's part of it. It's right standing. Peace comes when one who was an adversary of God by faith suddenly comes to be in right standing with God. That's a peace that uh, overwhelms even our darkest moments. Now let me develop this theme just a little bit more as we draw to a close. It's from a passage of Scripture perhaps you're familiar with. Paul wrote it. It's in Romans chapter 5. Let me read this to you. Therefore, says he, having been justified by faith, we have, here's that word again, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you may be in pain, but you are no longer at war with God. The condition is hurtful, but the position couldn't be better. At some point in the past, your past, contingent on your faith, you were bequeathed, as were they at that Passover meal, the Lord's special brand of shalom, special brand of of peace. There's no longer an adversarial relationship between you and an otherwise unapproachably holy God. No, now he considers you to be rightly related and even as a son or daughter adopted into his family. So try not to confuse what you have, peace with God, with what you feel. Don't let feelings rule. Let facts rule. Paul goes on to say, through whom... Again, referencing Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so he says, through Christ now, we've obtained an introduction, a kind of an entree, an access into an entirely new atmosphere, a a new reality, a new standing characterized by grace. Paul says, we have obtained our introduction, how? By merit? No, 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 by faith into this grace in which we stand. And folks, grace changes everything. You see, you're a child now, flawed to be sure, still with a sinful inclination, uh, make no mistake about it, and yet no longer an enemy of God. No, now we cry out, Abba, Father. Now we're on different terms, and now no matter what happens, and things come and go, that's what circumstances and situations are like. Still there is this persistent new air we breathe. It's the air of grace. So at one point by faith, peace came to be established between you, if you've accepted Christ, and Almighty God. It's a past reality that persists 
into the present. And then the present is characterized by grace. We don't stand as outsiders. Look, we don't plead with God. We don't beg him. We don't try to persuade and coerce him to be good to us. No, we're standing in the atmosphere of what's he called? The God of all grace. Grace changes. It changes everything. We're at peace with God, and we now stand in the grace of God. And there's one more thing that Paul alludes to. He says, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. The establishment of peace was a past event when you welcomed the Prince of Peace into your life. The atmosphere of grace comes to be a present reality now that you did that. There's a past ramification of what the Lord has bequeathed to us, peace. There's a present ramification, grace. And don't miss the future ramification, a hopeful expectation of the revelation of the glory of God. And Paul was so taken by this, he who was no stranger to suffering and loss and degradation and persecution, he could make this statement He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're real. He said, but they're not worthy to be compared to the glory which is to be revealed to us. We can't comprehend the incomprehensible, infinite Father God who has embraced us as his own. And if we could, we wouldn't bow at his feet in worship. He'd be, he'd be an equal, not a superior. And I love the fact that my father is bigger, better, and smarter than I am. Don't you? That's why we respect him and worship him. The downside is I don't understand the things he, those sovereign and good, allows his kids to go through. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I know one day I will. And it'll be at that time when I see the unfolding of the mysteries of life. And it is all summarized by the revelation of the glory of God. And then every one of us, even those of us who've uttered our complaints to God in the midst of loss, which by the way he can handle, every one of us then will say, I should have trusted you more. Now I understand. (gasps) Now I understand why in light of my eternal benefit and gain, you allowed me to suffer temporal loss. We may have had a very painful past. We may even be experiencing now a very trying present. But know this, in spite of it all, we can exult. That means rejoice. Exult in the hope of the glory of God, folks. I think things for us as believers are going to get worse. But hang in there. After all that, the best is yet to come. So we have these three things in the Lord's, if you will, last will and testament bequeathed to his first followers and by application all who call upon his name today. He's left us, again, not material goods, not a guarantee of health and wealth and all the rest. No, he said instead of those things, which, by the way, are fleeting things, he's left us that which has eternal ramifications, peace and grace and hope. 
Jesus, who died, yet rose up from it, bequeathed these things to us. Folks, our position couldn't be better. Our condition can sometimes seem to overwhelm us, but our position couldn't be better. And so what I want to do before our pastor comes is pronounce upon you a kind of a doxology which I discovered many years ago, but which popped into my brain earlier today in connection with this message, also written by Paul. It's in Romans chapter 15, verse 13, and uh, his words then apply to you and I who are in Christ now. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Shalom, in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom. God bless you.